Hello coaches, Dave Mullins here with the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Today I speak with Mark Ardazon, who just finished his first year as the Associate Head Women's Coach at Florida State University. Mark was the head coach at DePaul University for 23 seasons, leading the team to four Big East Championships. He was also named the ITA Midwest Coach of the Year in 2010 and 2014, and won Big East Coach of the Year honors five times. In this podcast, Mark discusses his humble beginnings in tennis, his transition into college tennis coaching, how he went about maximizing every penny in his budget during his early days at DePaul, and how that penny pinching has served him well throughout his college career. He provides some expertise on international recruiting, and he shares some pretty funny stories from a few of his trips to Europe, which I think you'll enjoy. Okay, Coach Mark Artizone, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for having me. Okay, well, uh, obviously, strange times we're living in. We're recording this uh, March 27th, but um, we won't dwell on, on what's not going well. We're going to dwell on our, our questions that I have for you today and, and looking forward to this conversation. So are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Thanks. Okay. So uh, obviously, Mark, you've, you have a very interesting background and, and kind of unlikely trajectory into the world of of tennis and, and college coaching. You don't come from kind of the, the typical uh, tennis uh, family um, where uh, you were exposed to it or had parents or siblings or things like that that were really involved in the tennis world. Um, but can you take me maybe through some of your experiences uh, as a junior player and then all in, on into your college uh, tennis playing days and and um, and some of your experiences shortly after just to, to give some context for for our listeners sure uh, you know I I started to play when I was 15 I was actually a pretty good baseball player back in Chicago and uh, just started playing tennis because I wanted to play a sport where it was all your fault if you won or all your fault if you lost mm -hmm. and so uh Somehow, one of my best friends, he was playing on the high school tennis team, and I just decided to join him. And I was the one of the worst players at first, and then uh, by the end of my very first year, I was probably the best player on the team. So I took to it pretty pretty quickly. But uh, my junior career consisted of probably, I think, one tournament. And the, the funny thing about that is uh, I was actually kicked out of the tournament for non-proper tennis attire. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I had an Edmonton Oilers hockey jersey and uh, some ripped up sweatpants, and the guy told me if I came back the next day wearing clothes like that, he wouldn't let me play. And uh, so, despite him, I came back wearing the exact same clothes the next day, and uh, I wasn't allowed to play. And so that was the the whole gist of my junior career. Uh, but uh, but what uh, I went to a four year school, and unfortunately, I didn't do very well. Uh, I went. I made the team as a walk on, but academically, I just didn't do very well. And uh, so I went to a junior college, uh, where that's where things completely changed, and my love of tennis really, really uh, came through. I I met my best friend Brett Bridell there, who's still a coach, and uh, you know, and and I was lucky to have uh, an incredible mentor. Uh, Dave Webster was the coach at College of DuPage. He he was the coach there for a long time. I know you met him as well uh, once, but uh, he was the guy who got me into everything. He he let me, obviously I played on the team and had some great experiences, but after that I still wasn't the best student. Uh, didn't really enjoy school that much. Uh, I try not to tell my players that, but uh, I uh, 
he just, he really knew I loved coaching. I loved being on the court and he just was really trying to make me do whatever I could do to do that. He said, Hey, you got to get a degree. You'll be a great college coach. And he pretty much forced me to go on to, to school. <laughs> and so I took a few years off after my junior college and I wasn't doing nothing and uh, just teaching tennis, but, uh, he got me to go back to school. And uh, I was fortunate that Coach Mark Rosewell at Northwest Missouri State took a chance on a on a little chubby guy who was pretty good. And uh, I went there and played a couple years there. And uh, it was a unique experience. There wasn't a lot of scholarship money at that time. And, uh, again, I uh, I got to play two years there. And Coach Rosewell was perfect for me. He we played like 700 matches. I think that was the days when there was no rules. Uh, and we had a match like every day, uh, which was absolutely perfect because I just wanted to play tennis. But uh, fascinating thing about that experience is I lived with uh, my great friends, Mike and Todd Shane, and we, we actually lived in a condemned house in Missouri because so, we, we didn't want to pay any rent. And so the guy said we could live there if we like guarded it. <laughs> so we lived there by by uh, I think February we had no electricity. By March we had no water, but we all lived in this house, and uh, it was pretty amazing to live in a house like that. But we really saved money. Uh, we we didn't use much money, and me and Mike, you know, we talked about you know we went to the ATM and got the you know, the insufficient funds message. And so uh, we both remembered going to a, to a Phillips 66 gas station and we got burritos with a gas card. So, uh, <laughs> but it, it, it was a tough time, but it was enjoyable. I played a lot, but it, it really taught me to appreciate what I did have. Mm. And it, but it made me love tennis. I mean, that was the only thing at that time. I mean, when you live in a house with no electricity, you can spend a lot of time on the courts. And so uh, that's, that's sure. what I did. And I had an assistant coach there in Missouri uh, named Rob VC. He was a great guy who he hit with me. I mean, we, you know, again, no rules then, no 20-hour rules, none of that stuff. I mean, me and Rob hit three hours in the morning. Then there was team practice. And then I'd hit in the afternoon with someone else. And uh, mm-hmm. it was just all I did was play tennis, so wow. it was great. <laughs> so, so yeah, those experiences obviously served you well as as you got into the college coaching world, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, how did you then move into to college coaching? What were your your first, I guess, opportunity, and and where did you go from there? Well, at the College of DuPage, uh, at the junior college, I started working with some kids, and uh, I, you know, Coach Webster let me be the assistant coach, and it wasn't really a a paid position, you know, he, he let me teach some classes and I got some privates, but, uh, that was my really first, uh, first foray into the college coaching. And then at Northwest Missouri, I ended up doing an extra semester where coach Rosewell let me help the team. But, uh, but really when I went back to college of DuPage after graduating, I really was an assistant. I was coach Webster's assistant. I was lucky to teach some classes at the college, but, um, you know, I got to coach and, and, there was one kid in particular, I always mention her, uh, there was a kid named Amy Slavacek who was a girl on the team, and she really was a little bit of a lost soul, but uh, she was the kid who let me coach her. She was the first kid who ever kind of gave me an opportunity to coach her, and I, I gave her some really hard times. I was <laughs> tough on the kid, 
but um, to this day, she became an unbelievably good player, and and she taught me that someone that I really could coach. She taught me that I could teach someone, that I could, mm. you know, make someone better. And and honestly, if it wasn't for her, uh, I doubt I would be a coach. You know, she really taught me that I thought I knew what I was doing, and that I did know what I was doing. She got so much better. Her one of her experiences was at the junior college. She she lost a match like six three in the third her freshman year, and the very same year she played the same girl and that was after working with me for seven months and she golden setted the girl. She won O and O forty eight straight points virtually. And so uh she realized how much better she got, but that was that was my chance and then I just fell in love with it. I just fell in love with trying to come up with drills. I fell in love with trying to work with players and get kids better. And so mm. that that early junior college days where again no rules, you could just teach someone all the time were were fantastic. Mm. And and is it true that during those early days at DuPage uh, that you you slept in the gym on the on the the gym mats? Is there? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a it's a it's a I don't know if it's a good story, but uh, there I was there so many hours a day. I was there probably I'd usually go in around seven a.m. and I was there till maybe eleven at night, and so. Uh, teaching and i was the guy who gave out like the greatest discounts ever if you got bought one private you got one free uh <laughs> arvid arvid swan always loves to talk to me about my business model but uh <laughs> but at the college in the in the one of the in the back room where the tennis balls where there were all the old uh high jump track mats and no one was using them anymore so i built my own little staircase and i used to just uh sleep on top of those mats at night but uh oh, i know the old ad knew i was doing it but uh he was such a great guy he never bothered me and it was really perfect for me i had uh there was like a little kitchen in the in the in the in the athletic department i had my you know coke zero or drinks in there and i had uh it was perfect for me so i just stayed at the courts and i'd order pizza every night whatever <laughs> deal, deal i could get at the pizza and then i'd sleep on the mats and so it was a little bit little bit fun but uh, a little yeah. bit again makes you appreciate certain things <laughs> well well for sure and then so so from there then you you moved on to DePaul women's tennis and and what year did you become the head coach at DePaul oh boy was that 1994 i believe i'm mm. trying to 92004 oh, no wait earlier than that way no i think 1998 sorry 1998 okay, okay. and then you know obviously You've taken your experiences there as, as as a college player, and then at DuPage, and and you know you really learned how to maximize every penny that that you had in in your budget, and and so um, how how would you encourage coaches to maximize their budgets and and determine how to prioritize their limited resources? How what did you learn in those early years, and um, you know continue to implement in your program as a head coach? Well, what what you really need to do is you need to figure out where you need to spend the money. And and early in my career, you know, I, you know, when I first got the job at DePaul, I was just, you know, the first day of practice, I was shocked because how good the girls were. I was really excited to get to work with such good players. And uh, but but what I realized very early, I was like, I gotta find good players. And you know, I would go to a midwest closed or something and there'd be 25 coaches there and all the big 10 were there and i'm like okay i'm not getting a shot at these good players you know all these people are here and i was like 
I've got to go somewhere else. And I, you know, and I saw that there was international kids and I saw that there was things, but, uh, but what I would say is, you know, figure out your budget. I was extremely, I wish I was as organized in my own personal budget as I was in my college budget. But, uh, I had all these little spreadsheets and I had little things like, you know, recruiting was this much dollars and I kept track to the penny. I would actually annoy our, if I caught a discrepancy of them charging something to my, my account, I would right away call and say, Hey, that that's not mine, you know, but I had spent, you know, I knew what the money was. I knew where the equipment was and I found ways, like I did fundraisers in the summer to raise money for some equipment and balls and things like that. But I, I was so unbelievably organized and obviously you know nowadays coaches need to be organized in their you know with their finances all the time but for me it was those those dollars were bottom line and they were DePaul didn't fluctuate a lot you know they did what they can they were real helpful when they needed to be but I just wanted to maximize those dollars and so I kept tracked and I knew that I could go to tournaments and you know there's some stories where I was very lucky that a, a guy named coach Chuck Mersbacher, you know, coach Chuck, he's at FC Chattanooga. He let me sleep on his floor at the hotels in those early days. Cause I was trying to save money. It was just all about saving money to recruit more. And I knew if I couldn't find better players or find the players I wanted that I wasn't going to be able to do anything and, and make the program better. So I would say really, really look at those recruiting dollars and really figure out where you can use your money the best. And I've talked with a lot of coaches over the years about how to spend money in Europe and how to not spend money in Europe, but really maximize that recruiting because recruiting is the name of the game. You got to get good players. Mm -hmm. and, and so would you literally look at your numbers every day, look at your budget and, and those spreadsheets on a daily basis? Every single day. There wasn't a day that went by. And I mean, and you know, I obviously, you know this well, you, I was the director of tennis, but, uh, I, I, when I was able to kind of combine the men's and women's money a little bit, I was then able to kind of really push those dollars in different ways. And, uh, but it was, it was really every single day and, you know, deciding whether to turn in a receipt for $12, you know, like, mm. which, you know, a couple people taught me that you should turn every penny in. But, you know, for me, I was, Sometimes I said to myself, you know what, I'm not turning that in. I'm eating that, you know, and so, mm -hmm. but, uh, but I was really, 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 and I planned so far ahead on recruiting that I was able to get flights and all that kind of stuff. Right. So when, when did you take your first international recruiting trip and what did you learn from those first few experiences traveling overseas? Well, the the first one I took was a real quick one to Sweden. I wouldn't count that, but uh, I just went to see one kid and came back. But the real first trip I took was uh, I went to Budapest, Hungary, and this was probably, I think, three years into my career at DePaul, uh, maybe a little bit, four years. But one of my players who I recruited and she played for me for two years got married in Budapest. Mm -hmm. And she had told me that there, you know, there was another Hungarian girl on our team, and they said, hey, there's a team tournament you know, well, this is going on. Well, my wedding's going on. <laughs> and I was like, okay, there it is. It's a recruiting trip. And so, but, uh, what happened was I went over to her wedding and, uh, honestly they had stuff set up for the Americans every day. It was like a seven day thing. And after day two, I was already bored of sightseeing. Uh, <laughs> Budapest is absolutely beautiful, but I'm, I'm not much of a sightseer, but, uh, I saw that there were some tennis courts about an hour from where I was, uh, our walk. I walk everywhere. But mm -hmm. uh, 
I walked over to these tennis courts and, you know, just happened to be one of these Hungarian team matches going on. And, uh, a kid found out I was a coach. These two girls came up to me and they were talking to me and one was about as tall as her tennis racket. And, you know, she was talking to me and said, I want to go to the U S and I was like, Oh, okay. You know, and I hadn't seen her play. And, and, uh, she walked away. She said, I'm playing in an hour. And I'm like, Oh, great. I'll watch. And so, uh, ended up an hour later, you know, I go over to where she's playing at these courts and, uh, I, I mean, I'm stunned. This kid was so good. She was playing a girl who played number one in the ACC from, and she was killing her. <laughs> and I, I went, Oh my gosh, you know, please God, let me have a chance at this kid. And, um, ended up, I talked to her after the match, you know, three days later, she committed to Paul and she was the best player I ever had. I mean, you know, she unfortunately tore her knee, Beatrice Sordash, but, uh, I think you might know Bia. Of course, yeah. <laughs> but Bia, Bia played for me and was fantastic. And, you know, but what that taught me was two things. It taught me one, never go sightseeing ever again. Uh, you know, <laughs> you, you might miss out on something, but it taught me most importantly that these kids were there. They're there. You just, you got to find them. You mm -hmm. got to beat the path a little bit. If it hadn't been me walking to that club and I mean, I, I got lost six times trying to cross the Danube, but, uh, <laughs> I got to that club and, and then I saw that kid and I said, these kids are here. I got to find where these tournaments are. Mm -hmm. I got to find, you know, how to get to these tournaments and I got to figure out how to see more kids. Cause we had a pretty rough TOEFL at DePaul. Um, and so I probably had to see more kids than the average coach cause they couldn't really get in. Our English requirement was pretty tough. Right. Wow. And then, so as we return back to kind of the budgeting question again, how did you find ways to stretch your budget in Europe? Obviously with each passing trip, you, you learned more, figured out where to go, where to stay, how to get around. Um, but you kind of became a, a, a true expert. Like you said, coaches would, would call you and speak to you about, Hey, you seem to have this international recruiting thing figured out. What are, what are some lessons you can tell me? Would you be able to share some of those lessons with, with a broader audience here on the podcast? Sure. Sure. I mean, it's just, a, it's really a matter of being organized. And I, what I tried to do is I, I found tournaments, you know, obviously, you know, everyone can look on an ITF site and find a, a 10,000 or 15,000 as they are now. And I, and I, I went to, I decided, okay, if I make a trip and I, I go to the first few days of, a of 15,000 at, at that time, you know, going to the qualifiers was good enough for me. It was going to get me a good enough player. Um, and so, but I also knew like it was not worth it just going over there for those three days. And so I, I tried to develop like two-week patterns and what i did was i would go to a the start of a itf tournament let's say in in budapest watch a few days but i had used what the internet my players some academies and all during that rest of the week like tuesday monday through friday i would find some other place to go and i would you know i would do this so far in advance and i'd be so frustrated if a kid changed their mind or something happened because i would book flights, you know, like a flight from Budapest to Bucharest, you know, you could find on, you know, kayak or one of these things. And mm -hmm. I'd find flights for like $24 <laughs> and I would book it. And I would be like, even if I lose the 24 bucks, I'm booking this, you know, and mm -hmm. I would find these little one way trips. And, you know, a lot of times you had to connect through three places or whatever, but I didn't care. I, I just thought, get me to another place. And, uh, mm -hmm. 
you know, and then I would maybe if you see a kid on YouTube or something, that's how I was. And, and I knew that I, if I turned over every stone, it wouldn't be, you know, maybe you see a kid or, or a kid emails you who isn't, you don't feel as good enough, but they're playing at a good club or someplace. We'll get to that club, mm. get to that club and, and make them know who you are. And, you know, and you may not take that kid, but you know what, there's another kid down the road. You know, I, I once saw a video of a kid hitting who I actually brought to DePaul, but I, I was, you know, the whole time I watched the video, the kid on the other side was so good. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm getting that kid. And I got that kid the next year. <laughs> and so, uh, but uh, I, I think, you know, you just have to be really, really smart with your money and, and you need to not, you know, try not to rent a car over in Europe. That's very expensive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just, you try to, and take advantage. If you know some friends or people you can stay with, I, I, I was fortunate, obviously I, I've stayed with people, but I, you know, I found places like when I would go to a tournament and I would be at the courts all day, when I would walk home, I would purposely walk like an hour out of my way and I'd walk around. Cause if I thought it was a good tournament, I'd try to find like either a small hotel that maybe wasn't listed on the, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. I, I didn't stay at holiday inns or anything like that. You know, I'd, I'd walk around and I found some really nice little bed and breakfast at near tournaments and, I ended up staying at those same places three, four years in a row, you know, and sometimes when I would go, but, uh, I really just tried to make that dollar go far and I tried to hit as many places as I could. And Mm -hmm. I didn't go to the tournament in Budapest. And then the following weekend, there's usually another tournament in Budapest. Well, I didn't go to that one because it was all the same kids. Right. And so I wanted to see other kids. So I'd hit that tournament in Budapest and then I'd try to get to Prague or something to see a kid and, Mm -hmm. you know, and I did pay my dues and, you know, the, some stories, you know, obviously I, you know, you know, my AD once put a, put an expense report on her wall and it was, uh, I went to Europe for 13 days and I spent $30 on food. <laughs> <laughs> and anyone who knows me knows I don't miss that many meals, but, uh, you know, so, you were, but, you were stuffing your bag with the continental breakfast, were you? No, I wasn't cheating. I, I'm not a cheater, but I, I would eat like a pig at the free breakfast. And then uh, I'm very famous. Some coaches can tell you. I used to bring my own food. I, I, I used to pack these cans of chicken. And uh, I would bring these cans of chicken. If I lost my can opener, it'd be like a devastating day. But uh, I had these cans of chicken I would eat at night. and I'd, But I'd also go to... Instead of going to a restaurant, I'd go to a grocery store and I was I'd buy salami and cheese and that's what I would eat for under mm-hmm. a buck. And uh you get the day old bread that's been sitting there for a while and that's like a quarter and you're you just save so much money. But I knew at that time I had to do it and right. I knew it would make my dollar go farther because at that time it started being you had to fly kids in for visits too. So mm. I knew I had to save money for that. So I was just extremely frugal and but I, I enjoyed the trips. I enjoyed the walking. I, mm-hmm. you know, I got to see things. I got to do things, you know, just walking around. You get to, you know, you get in a car, you just drive. You you don't really see the cultures of all the places, you know. Right. When you walk around, you get to see a few things that you wouldn't. And not that I, like I said, I don't sightsee, but I, <laughs> I like to just walk and see things. Yeah. Well, with those recruiting trips and, and you started returning to many of the same spots and sites and obviously had former players, alumni in those spots that were, were more than willing to help you as well. But, um, you know, I, I did plenty of international recruiting myself and, and, yeah, a lot of those international players, especially their coaches, 
are, are very skeptical of, of U.S. coaches and, and the college system in, in general. How did you break down some of those barriers, do you think? How did you make those contacts and those connections and, and build that trust over time? Well, a lot of it is, is you know, obviously just being there. Like sometimes, you know, I would go to a, a place every year, even if they didn't have an, a kid, you know, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't really just to just to say hi, just to be at, with the coach and, you know, and see how. Uh, but, uh, you know, you kind of just keep those relationships going. And I mean, now it's easier, obviously, because of all the stuff on the Internet. But I still think the in-person just saying hi to someone. But uh, what really helped me early in my career is the parents. You know, I mean, that's the biggest thing. I mean, when you have another parent tell another parent they should, you know, that their kid's having a good experience. And so I was, you know, I, I, there was a couple times I, I was with another coach and we were in Croatia and he goes, hey, you're not trying to talk to any players, you know. And I go, well, because I have a parent coming tomorrow. And, and sure enough, after that parent came, you know, five, six kids wanted to talk to me because mm-hmm. that parent walked around and obviously, you know, could speak the language and, you know, and and his daughter had a great experience. And so it was really, really helpful. And it, I realized then I'm like, you know, geez, I could do anything, but if I don't have that, I don't have anything. And so, and again, the former players who had good experiences and things like that, but, uh, but it's just really trying to develop that trust. But one of the things I did over the years that you know, some of those international coaches would tell you is I, I've helped probably 20 something Hungarian girls get scholarships. And, you know, I only had about five or six, but mm-hmm. I really worked hard. I knew there was schools. I was smart enough because I was so involved in the ITA and involved in college tennis that I knew there was schools where any kid at any level could play and could probably get an opportunity. And I worked extremely hard to get those kids opportunities. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, I, I probably found 20 Hungarian girls, maybe 15 Serbians, you know, and yeah. I was very fortunate to, and that's the coaches then were so thankful of me, mm-hmm. you know, that, that I helped their kids that they would maybe give me a shot at that really good kid. And, right. you know, and, you know, but, you know, that wanted to go on the tour, but you know, not everyone can go on the tour. Mm-hmm. So, but it's that personal touch. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you have a, do you have a most memorable international recruiting experience or story? Uh, well, one of them, I have a couple, but one was, uh, I was in Croatia. I was in a little town called Vinkovci, Croatia. It's about three hours from Zagreb. And, uh, you know, uh, I get into these fitness kicks. I don't know what gets into my head, but, uh, I was jogging every day. I was really like, okay, I'm gung ho now I'm jogging every single day. And, uh, the courts were a couple miles from where I was staying and it was a good, it was a fun little jog. And so, uh, but one day I was, uh, you know, just typical tourist American. I had my he- headphones on. I had my iPad attached to my arm, and I'm jogging, and I'm happy as ever. And uh, Croatian police cars have a very distinct siren. And, uh, you know, and I- I'm just jogging down the street. Again, I got my music blared. I have no idea. But the noise is getting louder and louder. I'm like, huh. And I'm running down the street, you know, just a regular side, just a regular street. And all of a sudden, like a police car flies in front of me, a police car flies behind me, and they hop out with their guns out. And they are screaming at me. They are screaming at me in Croatian. And I, I'm not sure I wet my pants, but I might have. But, uh, but all I could think about is I, I, I knew they were screaming at me in Croatian. And I could say, I kept saying, Nem Hrvatska, Nem Hrvatska. That means no mm-hmm. Croatian. And, uh, 
and they all like when I started screaming that they all like looked at each other and they put their guns down and they're like looking and they're like and then one guy's like what what is what are you doing are you American I go yes <laughs> and I, I probably said it like yes uh, with the high voice but uh, they all like put their guns down like three of them got they were so disappointed I I don't know if they really were hoping I was this master criminal but uh, yeah. and the guy yells at me screaming at me he's like what are you doing why are you running and I'm like. I just want to get in shape. I'm kind of fat. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's like, so he's like, he's like so mad at me. And so he did, they throw me in the back of the car and I'm like, Oh God, I'm still going to jail. I'm like, I was just jogging. You know, yeah. I didn't, I didn't say a word. I was so scared. And he goes, and so, you know, he's like, they drive me down and there's like this little lake, you know, little lake. And it's got like, he, they drive into this thing and he, I thought, Oh God, they're throwing me in the lake. They're just going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he opens up the car door and he's like, if you want to not be fat, run here, not on the street. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. So for the rest of the last few days, I swear I didn't even like, I didn't even speed walk. I was walking so slow so that uh, no one would ever, no one would ever accuse me. But I, I blame those guys for me not being in shape for the rest of the couple years because uh, that was the end of my running. But uh Oh man! But it, it was great. I was I, I remember laughing like the rest of the day. Like oh my gosh, you know. Like I said, I walked to the tournament. But uh, I don't that even was know. a fun one. And I had one in Germany that was like I got off a train in Germany at the wrong spot in the completely wrong spot. It was about nine at night. Mm-hmm. No other trains. I was going to see a German kid at the German national tournament and. I ended up, and this is the truth, I walked over three hours in a snowstorm. I had a windbreaker on, and I walked three hours, and I just decided, because I saw there was no trains, this train station was in the middle of nowhere, and I thought to myself, I'm just going to follow the tracks, and I'll get to a real town. <laughs> well, I never got to a real town, you know, until I got to Essen, Germany, and it was it was a three-and-a-half-hour walk in about two feet of snow, oh and... uh God with this, like a windbreaker on. And I, I remember getting there and the guy at the hotel was looking at me like, Oh my gosh, you know, what, where have you been, sir? And, uh, he was like, uh, he just gave me my room key and I just passed out. But I was like thinking to myself, I better get this kid after walking three hours in a snowstorm. And so, did you? Uh, I did get her. Okay. So she came to DePaul. Okay. I told her that story afterwards. I didn't tell her it <laughs> before. Cause I was a very worried that she would, uh, she just feel sorry for me and come, but I should have used that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or think you're a lunatic, one or the other. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, that's good. I don't even know what what other questions to ask you now, Mark. After that, <laughs> um, well, look, let's let's try and get more on uh, serious again. Um, sure. So you you uh, you uh, this summer you made the the move to be the the associate head coach at uh, Florida State. So you'd spent obviously. Uh, most of your career, you started out, like you said, at, at, at junior college at the Page, and then uh, moved on to the Paul mid-major program. But now in a Power Five conference, um, how has that experience been been different than maybe what you expected, or is there any surprises, or, or uh, you know, you've had a little bit of time now to reflect upon your last several months with the with the season now ending abruptly. Abruptly, um, is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I don't think there's been really any surprises. Fortunately, the, the we had a pretty good program at DePaul, so we got to see a lot of the Power Five, and we got to play a lot of them over the years. And so I, I don't know if there's surprises. What what I what I love here is that you know the it's 
athletics is is up another notch. You know, it's up another notch for sure. And you know, they really take care of their athletes at these programs. Not that we didn't, but there's just another level. Um, the thing is, the matches are just so intense. Mm. I mean, there's just not, you know, and and it's really professionally done. I don't want to say professionally, but you know, we have six umpires for every match. We have you know, everything, there's people, you know, doing everything. We had to set up all the courts at DePaul, as you well know, mm-hmm. and we had to do, you know, pretty much, I just got to coach the team, you know, and I got to go coach and, but it's really fun. I mean, Jen is, is fantastic. And she, she really, I, I didn't know what to expect at first being an assistant coach and, uh, you know, but she, she gives me so much input and she knows I just love the practice planning and the, being on the court, I love recruiting. I love everything about college tennis. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I don't, I haven't watched a pro tennis match in probably five years. <laughs> I couldn't even tell you what happens in any of those. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but being in these, uh, you know, just just getting to see all the schools, you know, going to going to Clemson, North Carolina, all these different places that you go, and you're just, you know, Virginia. I mean, how beautiful that school was, and all these different things, and and getting to go out there and compete with a really good team against those schools has been just so much fun. Mm. I mean, it's it's been. I always kind of laughed because I was like, ah, oh, these wimps play Friday and Sunday, you know. And <laughs> now I'm like, oh, thank God we have a day in between. You know? <laughs> just to, even as a coach, just to kind of, you know, take a break for a second and go, whoo, catch your breath. Mm. And so. Uh, I used to laugh, and now I'm like, hey, maybe we should play like Tuesday and Friday, Sunday or something. So, uh, <laughs> okay. but uh, but it, it's been such a fun thing, and I, I you know, I always kind of, you know, I, I've been a big Florida State guy all my life, and it, to get to coach here is really amazing. Okay, so so you know, we're talking about mid majors, power fives, you yeah, the power fives, and they get all these. Uh, bells and whistles, and like I said, six six umpires and and maybe a, a, another roving official, and and you've got um, you know um, pl- plenty for these players, yeah. and then some. But but you know what what changes have you maybe seen occur in college tennis in the last couple of decades that that concern you? Does that especially where we sit here today and, and there's a lot of unknowns about where our economy is if if college football is even going to get played if um these players are going to get another year of eligibility or or you know the freshmen and sophomores and juniors going to get that year of eligibility what does that do to our budgets what does that do to 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 college tennis uh i know there's a lot there but but what changes have you seen um and and are what concerns do you have about about college tennis yeah, I mean it's the the intensification of of winning obviously has been one of the biggest changes I've noticed. I mean, you know, I think 20 something years ago when I started it there wasn't such a emphasis on winning. I don't think there was like a director's cup or at least you never heard about it. Mm-hmm. So now winning has become such a big thing and and coaches, you know, the 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 hunger of the coaches is another part of it like, you know, as I said, when I used to take all these recruiting trips, I was the only coach over there. Like I'd be in, in somewhere in, in Romania and I was the only one, you know, a few years later, there's another coach, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> me and you took a trip. And then a few years after that, you know, there's four or five coaches at a tournament. So it's, you know, the 
emphasis on winning, the emphasis on finding players, the more willing to spend money, the more willing to go overseas and, and, and go and not just overseas, but go see players everywhere was just something that has completely changed. And, and, you know, and I, I, I do wonder, you know, a little bit, when's the, is there a, a ceiling we're going to hit here as far as how much money we spend and things like that? I, I worry about it all the time. I mean, I'm, I've come from the background of obviously budgets being a little different and, you know, and in trying to make sure, but I see college tennis pushing that envelope a little bit. And I see us, you know, hoping for things that, you know, or wanting things that I'm always like, eh, be careful what you ask for here, mm. you know? And, uh, in my time with the ITA, I was, I, I kind of sometimes thought I was the voice of reason. Uh, you know, I kind of, you know, now I'm supposedly at a big school, but I still think the little schools or smaller schools have different issues than other people really know about. And mm -hmm. I just, you know, don't want them to be forgotten. You know, having six umpires is, is a luxury. It's not a, mm -hmm. even in a city like Chicago, it was hard to get six. Um, it was hard to get three umpires sometimes. Right. And yet we have three million people. And so, uh, you know, and so it's, it's a different thing, but I, I just hope we don't bite off more than we can chew, if that makes sense. And just kind of, you know, like what we have, we try to keep getting a little more and try to make the players experience better. But mm -hmm. all these things with taking kids to pro tournaments and all these things, they, they scare me a little bit. Mm -hmm. They scare me a little bit about the future. Well, do, do, do you believe these extra things are making the, the student athlete experience better? I don't know if they're making it better. It, it just, it creates a different experience, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I, I had a player at, at DePaul who, you know, when I told her, Hey, I'll take you to all the pro tournaments next year. And to her credit, she goes, I don't want to go. Uh, you know, <laughs> she goes, I'm, I can go pro next year. She goes, I just want to be with the girls, mm -hmm. be at the, you know, whatever Western Michigan open, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but some kids were like that, but others aren't, you know? And so I think, you know, it's, I think you just got to be really creative on trying to balance that team and that individual and, and, mm. you know, and some of that kind of stuff. I think there's a creative balance, but I think just playing college tennis is just such a great experience. And I, I hope the kids just really, you know, enjoy that no matter what, mm. you know, that, that part of it, cause they're never going to get it back. Right. Right. So, you know, with your experience on the ITA being, being the, chair of the Midwest region for, for so many years. And like you said, now you've, you've had experience at, at different levels. Um, you know, what, what is your hope for the future of college tennis? Where, where do you hope we go going forward? And, and, you know, you said you're, you're often the voice of reason, which you absolutely are. Well, what message would you have for coaches today? I just think that try to be inclusive of all of college tennis. I think we sometimes forget that, you know, there's 300 or something division one teams and there are all these teams. And I just hope, you know, that the, the ITA, you know, the different levels are really listened to that, you know, cause I think there's incredible coaches at, you know, the junior Dave Webster was an amazing coach. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, he was at the Juco level and, you know, and, Brett, my friend at Division Two, he's the best doubles coach I've ever known. And so, you know, he there's there's so many great coaches, but they also have so many great ideas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they their ideas are sometimes, you know, we live in this division one sometimes lives in this world of, you know, we everything is kind of done and we want it to be the same. We want everything, but 
I think, you know, as long as the ITA and is, is stays as inclusive as it can be of, of everyone, mm-hmm. you know, granted the, they put on tournaments for, and the best kids are there, but be inclusive because it's, it's so important. And like I said, the ideas of some of the so-called smaller schools or whatever are just, they have, they're, they're great. Mm-hmm. And, and we want to listen. And I, I think that's one of the keys because that's going to be, somebody's going to come up with something that's going to mm. help our game. That's going to grow our game. I mean, Someone told me that the volleyball scoring a bunch of years ago was brought up by some smaller volleyball school and 90% of the people hated it. Well, volleyball probably wouldn't exist as we know it if they hadn't done that. And so, uh, but I think you've got to be able to, and I do wish, you know, and I I like that the ITA, I think the ITA gets a lot of, you know, people aren't happy with it, but I I think we need to take some chances. We need to try something and you can always go back. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we need to try things. You know, when we tried no ad, well, at first I didn't like it. Now I don't, I couldn't, I can't stand going to watch a junior match that has regular scoring. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, but uh, I think it develops players. I think it makes you handle pressure better. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, it's certain things that it does, but uh, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying things. Right. You know, I mean, if it's one year, it's a, <laughs> a spring, whatever, try some things. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we can really try to be all inclusive and hear, hear everyone. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Mark. And, and uh, definitely take it to heart and, and hear what you're saying. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I hope other coaches do too. I think uh, believing that the, the status quo and trying to maintain the status quo is, is going to move our sport forward is, is, uh, a grave mistake and and there's changes coming whether we like it or not and we're going to be greatly influenced by the economic economic fallout of, of coronavirus and like we said uh what's what's coming our way here and in, in the months and, and potentially years to come we we may not really see the fallout of this for for several more years and and uh sure. we've got to make sure that that college tennis is in a healthy place and um, a sport that these athletic d- directors believe they they should hold on to and and continue to yeah. support. So, yeah, I think uh, if if coaches aren't thinking in those terms and and are not worried and are expecting the status quo to continue, I'd, I'd encourage them to uh, to um, not sit on their laurels and um, yeah. uh, find ways to be proactive within their their athletic department and and community. But Okay, Mark. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the rapid fire round. Um, okay. I don't think you're, you you love to read a whole lot, um, but but is there a book that's made a major impact on you as a coach? Yeah, well, like I I don't know if I read a book at all by years of college, but uh, but Coach Webster gave me a book, and I, you guys probably have it sitting in your office somewhere. I think it I think it's called the Itka Guide to Coaching Tennis. It was made in like 1990 or something by David Benjamin was the editor, but it had like 18 different chapters mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of coaches. And obviously it was some of the most famous coaches ever, uh, Alan Fox, uh, you know, a mm. bunch of different coaches had a different chapter on everything. And that book, I, that was the first book I ever read, you know, back to front or front to back, you know, I read it I read everything and, some of it was fantastic, and you know, there was a thing about fundraising with uh, Dick Leach from USC, mm-hmm. where he he said, you know, he could sell a sweatsuit for a thousand dollars, a USC sweatsuit. And when I got to DePaul, I realized we only had seven sweatsuits, so I couldn't sell any. But uh, you know, but but really, that book, just all the little chapters, all the little different things, and. Huh. It's, you could buy it on Amazon for like four bucks. You guys need to reprint it. But uh, yeah. it had so many little things. Some of it, obviously, not as much 
but it had stuff about scheduling. It had, it, it just, it made me see that there's, there's so much to coaching, the psychology part of it, the conditioning part of it, which, you know, I'd give anything to go back and learn more psychology, but, uh, you know, and, but that book, it's called the Ica guide to coaching tennis. I remember it was my only book I had in my office for the longest time. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'd never heard of that or come across it. And, and... look around, it's gotta be laying in there somewhere. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, uh, I think as you know, I'm, I'm actually working on a, on a coach's manual right now. And, and, yeah. uh, we might just copy that instead and send it yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> Save me lots of time. Um, okay, I, I know you love uh, you love your practices. I always enjoyed watching your practices and your your energy and your your creativity. Um, and you you're thinking of new drills and new ways to keep players engaged all the time. Do you actually have a favorite drill of all your millions? Yeah, I mean a lot of them have goofy names, uh, but. I, I think if my players would say, they'd say there's a drill called isolation doubles. And uh, you can do it at any level, but it's, it's a drill where you really, I always make jokes, you isolate the bad player, you hit balls more to the player who's not as good. I don't want to use that bad player, mm -hmm. but isolation doubles. I, I'd be glad anyone wants to write me and or ask me, send me an email and I'll write it all out for them. But uh, that's the drill. If you ask my players, they'd be like, oh, isolation doubles. But it, it teaches you how to play doubles. Okay. It really does. Do you have a, 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 a 30 seconds uh, brief description of it? So so coaches have it, some it, sense of it? It's a two-on-one drill where mm -hmm. you have uh, two players uh, two players at the net, and they're playing against one player on the baseline on half a court. Mm -hmm. And they play the point out, and when the point ends – Within a second, the person on the ad side will feed a ball. And what you're looking for is, to me, what you can teach kids right away is movement. Mm. You know, shots are, they're going to miss shots. They're going to make shots. But if, you know, I was a guy, I wasn't very good at tennis, but I was always in the right spot. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, and, and that shifting in doubles, that's so important. It teaches you how to follow the ball. And you could do it for 10 minutes straight of just that thing. You could rotate around. You could add another player on the one side. You can do... At DePaul, we had to do some flexibility because of courts. But uh, mm -hmm. but isolation doubles teaches you really how to play doubles and how to track a ball and how to, mm. you know, you know, stagger your positioning. It teaches you so many little things in a simple drill. Mm. Great. Well, it's it's um, before this uh, coronavirus hit and and everything got shut down. I was getting ready to actually record some. Uh, drills and and upload them to our YouTube channel, and then I was going to encourage uh, every coach in the country to upload one video themselves. Oh, I, just, and, and, I think it'd be great. I think I it would know. be absolutely a great so, thing, and I will be the first one to upload. I know. One. I will let you know uh, as soon as we get that going, and um, yeah, that that's going to be awesome. But as, as soon as we get back to some regular uh, scheduling and i can get out on a tennis court with another human being right. then then we'll do that for sure so thank you me and my good friend coach pollard are <laughs> we are, we have a drill exchange going on right now yeah. we have to give each other 12 yeah. drills in the next 12 oh, days no, you coaches so. love your drills <laughs> just can't get enough of them um so name one thing you've changed your mind on in recent years whether it's in coaching or in life uh well everything is in coaching but uh Quality over quantity. I was a guy who, you know, believed that the day before a match you should hit for seven hours, uh, you know, and that was what, you know, kind of made me good. But now I realize, you know, and it was fortunate at DePaul sometimes that we only had very little time, two hours, and I just really felt that the quality was way more important than the quantity. And I still see coaches who run 
three and a half hour practices, and I think they stink. Mm. I, I think that you know nowadays, especially as the kids change a little bit, that you know, give me an hour and I could make it well worth any kid's time. Give me forty minutes and I could make it worth any kid's time. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. So quality and having a plan, and that's what I think has changed the most mm-hmm. in my world. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite quote? Uh, probably two of them that I say all the time. One is. Never let the ball bounce twice, which is just an effort. <laughs> uh, I used to have that printed on the back of our shirts. Uh, people would be like, what the heck does that mean? But, uh, but now it's probably trust your shots. I think these kids are taught from such a young age, and for whatever reason, they, they lose the faith. And I always tease them that you're not going to forget how to play tennis. You, know, you mm. could put your racket down for 10 years. You're still going to know how to hit a forehand, mm. you know, and uh, – you know, so it's really just trust your shots over and over. Just trust your shots. You're going to miss, but trust it. Okay. And what is one lesson you hope your players learn from you by the time they've left uh, your your program? Probably that hard work can accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. You know, that if you just work hard, if you just put your nose to the grind and you know, you can do, you can do anything, you know, I mean, it, you know, there's uh, the goal setting and all that stuff. That's great, but you just, you got to work, you got to work hard to get any of that stuff. And I, I know that's the example I try to set. I try to be the first one here every day, the last one to leave. And mm-hmm. I just want them to know that hard work can get anything done. Great, Mark. Well, look, I think that's, uh, that's it. You, uh, uh, I really enjoyed that. That was that was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for all your your hard work for the ITA and college tennis and your service for for many years. Um, and thanks for putting a big smile on my face every time I see you. So it's well, uh, thank you. I, I, thanks for doing this. I think it's so great to get uh, get the different stories out about different coaches. And I think I I wish we'd be a little more. Everyone would share more especially at this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll keep working on it and we'll continue to have coaches share their stories, but I think uh yeah, I think everybody's really going to enjoy uh some of your stories today. So, thank you, Mark. We'll see you soon. Thank you, David. See you.